And so in 2 Kings 16, we're going to get a little bit of background to the virgin birth prophecy of Isaiah 7.14. I think context is huge. Always. I love to look at context. I spend much of my time understanding what's going on around the scene before we actually dig into the actual text, the verse. But 2 Kings 16 is where we're going to be. We're talking about the verse in Isaiah 7.14 where God says that the virgin shall conceive, bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And so let's bow in prayer and ask God to give us understanding and even apply the text of Scripture to us. Father, I'm so thankful for the Word of God. It is light. It is life. It is strength and breath to us. We absolutely need the Word of God more than we need our food for the day, our physical food. Thank you, Father, that we can live by this Word. We believe you. Even 700 years before Jesus was born, you prophesied that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a boy, and this boy would be named God in human flesh, dwelling with us. Oh, what a remarkable, fantastic promise. And thank you for its fulfillment in our Savior, Jesus Christ. So open our minds and hearts to understand what the Spirit says in the Word of God. Thank you. Same. Amen. So 2 Kings 16, this is about the man named Ahaz, King Ahaz. The, the, the name Ahaz, I love names in Hebrew. The name Ahaz mean, means one whom God has possessed. One whom God has held on to and grips. Isn't that neat? I would love to have the name Ahaz, except that this guy was such a terrible character and such a rejecter of truth and a denier of the faith. I, I can't have that name. But it's a great name. One who is absolutely possessed by God so that God can do whatever he would want with this individual. Well, let me tell you what's going on with King Ahaz. King Ahaz is king of Judah, the southern empire. Okay? He's got two enemies directly north of him. So put yourself, could you put yourself in King Ahaz's place tonight? You're king of a small remnant of people in a small country called Judah. North of you, you have ten tribes, your ten brother tribes, named Israel. They want to attack you. You've got the other nation called Syria right north of you. They're a little bit larger. They want to attack you. And above them is Assyria, the world empire. All right. And you're just a tiny little king with a tiny little kingdom. What happens in 1 Kings 16 is this. Israel attacks Judah and takes captives. And we'll hear more about that in the next text. Syria comes down and takes captives. So now he's, both enemies have come across his border. Great damage. So what, what King Ahaz does is he goes to Damascus, the capital of Syria. He goes to warn the end king's capital. And while he's there, he sees a pagan altar to Baal, to a false god. And he thinks, hmm, Syria is winning a battle against me, God. So it must be their altar is more powerful than our altar. So he has the priest from Jerusalem go up to Damascus, take dimensions, get pictures, you know, Google it and all of that, and builds the, a replica he brings it into Jerusalem and gets rid of the bronze altar that God established, 
put a pagan altar in its place, literally moved God's altar, put a pagan one. He took the bronze laver, which was critical in Solomon's temple with the, remember how the bronze pillar or the bronze laver sat on the oxen? He takes the oxen out. He puts the laver on the floor. I mean, he's totally, he's going crazy. He's just not doing good at all. All right? So that's what we find in this chapter right here. Let's go to 2 Kings 16 quickly. Um, verse 10. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglat-Pileser, king of Assyria. King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all its workmanship. Then Uriah the priest built this altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. When the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar. The king approached the altar. He made offerings on it. He burned his burnt offering and his grain offering. He poured his drink offering, all of that. Verse 14, he brought the bronze altar which was before the Lord from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. Rearranging God's furniture, which God said you can't do. All right? But it's not just that. Look at what else he did. Look at chapter 16. Go back to verse 3. He walked, King Ahaz walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. He burned his own son to appease the false gods. According to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel, he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Wow. No wonder why God let the enemy roam free in his country. Go over to Second Chronicles chapter 28. Just to get a little bit more idea of what's going on with this man. There's one verse in particular I'd like you to see. Second Chronicles 28. Second Chronicles 28, verses 1, beginning in verse 1. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. Just a young man. 20 years old. He's king of a nation. He, by the way, he is of David. He's a descendant of King David. He reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord, as his father David had done. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnon. That's the Gehenna, valley of Gehenna on the southern side of Jerusalem. He burned his children in the fire. So not just one son, but probably many children. He burned into the god Molech. Verse 4, he sacrificed burned incense on the high places, on the hills, every, under every green tree. Oh, that's terrible. Well, let's skip over to verse 19. For the Lord brought Judah low. The Lord's doing this. He brings Judah low with the enemy, discourages them because of Ahaz, king of Israel. Hey, do you know a lot, a lot depends on leadership, right? A lot of the church and the direction of the church depends on the leadership of the church, on the deacons, particularly myself, the pastor as well. And the, and the leadership can bring a church down low or it can lift it up and encourage it and strengthen it. It says here in verse 19, Ahaz had encouraged moral decline in Judah and had been continually unfaithful to the Lord. And then look at the sad verse, 22. Now, in the time of his distress... Okay, so when he is most anxious, when he is most frustrated and low, in the time of his distress, King Ahaz became increasingly what? Unfaithful to the Lord. This is that King Ahaz. What a statement. You guys, when he was burdened by the pressures of the day, 
the enemy coming across, his country being attacked, there was a great burden and a weight on his shoulders. Instead of turning to the Lord with trust and faith and confidence, he became increasingly unfaithful. Now, it's possible for somebody in our church to go through a dark time, a time of burden and distress. It could be financial, it could be emotional, it could be spiritual, it could be relationship issues. It, so many things in this world could bring us down. And you know what happens to people who are depressed and discouraged? They become increasingly unfaithful. Instead of sticking closer and tighter together, we want to be alone and isolated. Why? Satan loves isolation and he loves darkness. And boy, if he can get us isolated in a dark place away from everybody else that would encourage and strengthen us, he's got a huge victory going right there. And he does that with Ahaz. This is that King Ahaz who acts this way. Now let's go to the text of scripture for tonight, Isaiah 7. And now you can begin to see the pressure on, on, on um, King Ahaz. Isaiah chapter 7, please go with me. Isaiah 7, 8, 9, I would call this the book of Emmanuel. Chapter 7, 8, 9 is all about children, all about small little children, innocent children. I love it. We get a prophecy of a birth of a boy in chapter 7. We've got Isaiah's two sons, two little children, two boys in chapter 8. And then we have a baby who is God in human flesh, who has such great names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of Peace, everlasting father. I'm sorry, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. So we, 7, 8, 9, read it this week many times. It's all about children. Here it is, Isaiah 7. Can you get, get a little background on, on King Ahaz? You can know what's going on. Do you see why he's so pressured with making decisions? Here it is. Isaiah 7, here's what God's word says. The setting is verse 1 and 2. It came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, that's the northern country, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. All right, so that's not fun. You have two enemy kings. They gang up on you. And you're having a hard time. You don't sleep at night. Verse 2, it was told to the house of David, that's King Ahaz's empire, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, so his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. You know when a wind comes through the woods, all the trees bend and bow, right? When the wind comes. So the people come, the Assyrians come, the Israelites come into Judah, and King Ahaz is just beginning to fall. He, he is without strength. And as a matter of fact, everybody in the country is absolutely afraid. They're terrified. They're discouraged. They're crying. They're hiding. They're in darkness. They're not doing anything they should be doing. They're all scared to, scared to death is what they are. Verse 3. So here's what the Lord does. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shir Yazub, at the end of the aqueduct for the upper pool on the highway to the Fuller's Field. So King Ahaz is up at the water supply, trying to probably find a way to protect his water supply, and Isaiah is told to go out and have a little meeting with King Ahaz, to encourage him, to put some strength in his heart, some confidence in God, right? Do you agree? This is a good thing. This is exactly what King Ahaz needs. He's absolutely terrified. Verse 4, here's what Isaiah was to say. Take heed, be quiet, do not fear, do not be faint-hearted. Now, isn't that the best advice God has ever given us? Do not be afraid. Why? Because who's in charge? Are the Syrians in charge? No. Are the Israelites in charge? No. Who's in charge? God's in charge. God says, King Ahaz, I am in charge. You are my people. 
I am your God. I will protect you. Take heed. Great, excellent counsel. Be quiet. Don't be blabbing. Just be quiet. Listen to me. Hear my words. Put them deep in your heart. Do not be afraid. And do not lack courage. Do not be faint-hearted. I love this. He, then he goes on to tell why. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, you know what a, a smoking firebrand is? It is just like, you know if you have a twig, and the twig had a flame, and then the twig went out? You know that it's, not, it, it's cooling off. It's not going to suddenly um, spark up again. It's extinguishing itself. God says, King Ahaz, don't worry. Israel and Syria... They're like little smoking fire brands. They're going to puff out and they are not going to start a big fire. Don't worry about them. Trust me. Good advice. You guys agree? And then he goes on to say in verse 5, because Syria, Ephraim, Syria is the one country, Ephraim, or Israel is the second, and the son of Ramalia have plotted evil against you. Here's what they said. The enemy said, let us go up against Judah, trouble it. Let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves. Let's set a king over them, the son of Tabal. See the plot? The enemy wants to destroy and kill, and God says, I'm your God. I'm bigger than them. I'll take care of them. All right, let's move on. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God. This, this is God's very word, which now King Ahaz is hearing. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus. All right, you guys, we don't really necessarily know the geography back then, but the capital of Syria is Damascus. It's like the oldest city that's been inhabited in, on the world, on the planet. Damascus is the oldest civilization where there's been people recorded. Um, continually living since ancient days. So it would be like this. God said this. As sure as Washington, D.C. is the capital of the United States. By the way, how sure is that? Is it 99% sure or 100? 100. Come on, you can answer. 100. It's 100% sure that Washington, D.C. is our capital. God said... As sure as Washington, D.C. is the capital of the USA, so these two enemies are going to be defeated, no problem. All right? God's saying, I'm giving you 100% assurance the enemy will be dealt with, and they will not hurt you. All right, I see this is good news. Then he says this, As sure as the head of Damascus is resin, that'd be like saying, As sure as the president is Trump, Donald Trump, so this is going to be true. It's a guarantee. It's true. There's no wiggle room. Listen to this. Within 65 years, Ephraim, Israel, is going to be broken without power. Sure enough, you know what happened? 63 years later from this, from this prophecy, 734 BC, in 671 BC, the Assyrians had already taken most of Israel captive. They flooded the northern kingdom with foreigners to intermarry so that there's no way Israel could ever come back from captivity. Israel was broken 63 years later. Is God good for his word? What he says, can he be trusted, yes or no? Yes. yes. You guys, whatever God writes in this book, he can be trusted. We need to. Le if he tells me, if, if, if the word of God said I could leap off a bridge and not hurt myself, I would jump off the bridge and then not hurt myself. It doesn't tell me that. But that's how seriously we can take God's word. When God says, if you trust my word and do it, I mean, he always is right. He's always true. He's always right. Listen to the last part. Verse 9. 
As true as the head of Ephraim, the capital of Ephraim is Samaria, and that's 100%. And the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. That was the king. That's 100% true. Here's, let's look at the end of verse 9. If you will not believe, you will not be established. God said this, King Ahaz, either you live by faith or you're not going to live at all. Either you believe my words or I will kill you and get you out of the picture. There's no options. All right? So King Ahaz, he's got a problem now. Does he trust God and stay put and get a victory? Or does he go to Assyria, bargain with the big king, and, and get, the, get help from another country? God said, don't get help from another country. I will take care of you. See, do you see the decision? What would you guys do if you were King Ahaz? Would you trust God and stay put as the enemy crossed your border, knowing God would defeat them with some miracle? Or would you make an arrangement with a big country, you could pay them off, and they'll become your new army? I, mean, I would like to say I would trust God, but when your family is in danger because of the enemy, you might run scared, right? All right. Do you see the situation? If Ahaz doesn't trust God at this point, he's over. He's done with. That's how important trusting God is. It's so important tr- faith is. So verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying this, Ask a sign for yourself, because you know what? He knows Ahaz is weak. Here's what God says. Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Don't you love this? God says, okay, Ahaz, you're a man of little faith, if not no faith. But tell you what, if... If you tell me, I want you to ask me to do a miracle, and I will do it if it's in the heavens or if it's on earth, I will do the miracle. You just got to ask me what you want me to do. Now, listen, uh, if Ahaz asks God to do a miracle, and then it happens, can Ahaz trust God's word? Yes. Even more so because he gets a miracle to back it up. So what would you do if you were Ahaz? I'd be like, Lord, I, would, I want you to go two months backwards with the sun. Just while I'm watching, I want the sun to go backwards really fast around the sky. That'd be kind of cool. Then I would know that God is God and I can trust him. Or maybe if it was an earthly thing, I would say, Lord, I want you to change all the water to be um, purple, and then I want all the fish to walk on land. And then, I, I mean, he could have just had tons of miracles. I want all the camels in the desert to call me by name and talk to me in, in Arabic or, or talk to me in Hebrew. Do you see? He could ask any miracle and God would do it. And then Ahaz would be like, oh, sure, I can trust God for sure. Right? Look what he does, though. You guys. Verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. You guys, you're not testing the Lord when he asks you. When God commands it, it's not a test. It's a command. So you know what Ahaz is doing here? A problem we have in the church. This is a big problem in the church. Ahaz had already predetermined he was going to disobey God before before this even came up. He knew in his heart what he was going to do. He was going to disobey God and get help from Assyria. He knew he was not going to turn to God, and he knew it in his heart. So even when God gave his word, he wasn't going to listen. Some people come to church as Christians, and they say, you know what, my heart is already made up in how I want to live and what I want to do, and I I know what God's word says, but even when it's told to me, I will not do it. They're that stubborn. Isn't that sad you can find that in the church today? But it happens. I've talked to people. 
over the, over the decades of ministry. And they have come to me for counsel. And they have said, Pastor, this is what our marriage is like. We want help. We want God's help in our marriage. And we talk to them for just a little bit, and I already know they don't want help from God. They just want to get their way in the marriage, and they want me to agree to it. And they're each fighting each other, and the one wants me to take their side, and they have no interest in what does God say about humility and love and respect and all of that. Their heart was already made up. And then I explain to them God's word, and they're like, you know, and all of a sudden they bluster, and, and I'm like, well, this is not, I'm not telling you this. This is what God says. You wanted to know what does God say. I've had other people come in with other issues and situations, and they're, I already know. They, don't, they're not, they want to know what does God say, but they don't, want it. they don't want to follow it. So this is a haz. He knows what's right. He knows God will answer, but he doesn't want to do it. So sad. So sad. So, Ahaz will not ask God for this miracle because he's already made up his mind to do his own thing. So verse 13, Isaiah says, Hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? See, it's no longer Ahaz's God. It's Isaiah's God. Ahaz has been literally pushed out of the picture. Sometimes we weary God, don't we? He looks down and he says, listen, I've given you everything about Jesus Christ, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and yet you still don't believe him. You still won't trust him. You still won't walk in his ways. You still want to do your own thing and enjoy your own life and just tack Jesus on a little bit here and there. No, Jesus Christ deserves everything. He deserves our very all. So God says in verse 14, here it is, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. God's going to give a sign. Since Ahaz wouldn't ask for one, God says, I'll give you a sign. But I love it. It's a sign to the house of David, which is the kingly line. There's been one faithless king after another. And God says, I'm going to give you a king that is faithful. Finally, a faithful, righteous king. But he's going to come not through a husband-wife relationship, he's going to come through a virgin who will conceive and give birth a baby boy. Look at the text. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now the word virgin in the Hebrew, there's two words that refer to a virgin woman. There is one that is strictly a virgin. That's not this word. There's one that is strictly a virgin. There is another word that's used for a woman of marriage. She's not married. An unmarried woman. But everybody in that culture, this unmarried woman, would be a virgin. To, not, to, to have relations before marriage was unthinkable. By the way, if it's not a virgin... Is there any special miracle about a woman having a baby? It's happening all the time, every day. Every second of every day, babies are being born across the, across the world. True? There's no miracle if it's just a woman's going to give birth to a son. It happens all the time. But the miracle is, a virgin will not have an earthly husband for the seed that will produce a child. So the virgin shall conceive, and I'll show you Matthew one eighteen to show you the same thing. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. It's going to be a boy son. Hey, by the way, you know what this means? 
the seed of the woman back in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman that will crush the devil is, a, is going to come through this virgin. It's the same son. Eve will bear for, bring forth a son who will destroy the devil. It's going to be this boy child from a virgin. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which of course we know means God with us. Boy, there's so much more that I'd like to add, but let's instead, let's turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Just a few verses in Matthew 1 to show you the fulfillment of it. This was 734 years before Jesus. Isn't God great? He knew all along this was going to happen. Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, so she is a virgin, she was found with child, and we know how this happened, of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David. Uh, you see, Joseph should have been the king in Jerusalem. He's a carpenter in Nazareth. Why? Why is he a carpenter? Well, we'll talk about that next week. Because Jeconiah was cursed. He's not the king. He should be. He's got kingly blood in him. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, just like Isaiah 7.14 says, and you shall call his name Yeshua. Yeshua meaning the one who saves. God who saves. For he will save his people from their sins. That's why everything in the Bible and in this church is about Jesus. A person came to rescue us from sin. And then the quote, verse 22 So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And the prophet Isaiah said, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. Now this word virgin in verse 23, in the Greek, it means an absolute virgin. An absolute virgin. No doubt, no question. So the Holy Spirit clearly knew what what he was doing. And um, so we know this is true. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Wow. They had to wait 734 more years, but it happened, just like God said. So what are the lessons? Here are some quick lessons. When it comes to the Word of God, trust it completely. You should know your Bible. Know your Bible. So you know what you can trust. And then trust it completely. Obey it wholeheartedly. All right? Um, When surrounded by difficult circumstances like King Ahaz was, trust God completely. All right? Difficult circumstances will come. Do not isolate yourself. Don't go into darkness. Don't become unfaithful. But if anything, cling tighter to others. Cling tighter to the church so we can strengthen and encourage and exhort one another during these days. Because everybody's going to go through some hard times. We've got to be there for each other. We've got to be open and transparent, bring it out to the light, get the, get the encouragement and strength from one another, 
and really from God's word and his spirit that we need, right? So, you'll, so those two things. Trust the word of God, and when surrounded by difficult circumstances, please cast all of your care upon the Lord. And then, when you need comfort and hope, like Ahaz, what was Ahaz pointed to? The coming of Jesus, right? In the church age, when you want comfort and hope, you know what I do when I'm looking for comfort and hope? This world is temporary. It's only for a short time. Jesus is coming back, and he's going to make everything right. I say that to my students at school all the time. Jesus is coming back. He's going to make it all right. Because they're complaining about everything left and right. I'm like, that's okay, because Jesus is going to come back and fix it all. And right now it's messy and chaotic and full of problems, but life is going to be made right for all eternity when Jesus comes back. So hope and find comfort in his return. Do you all agree? We're going to get into, and this isn't going to be tonight, but in uh, Luke chapter 2, when the angel showed up to Mary and said, Mary, this babe in your womb is the Holy One of Israel. She knew she had God in her body. And when the baby was born and she was holding on to that baby, she knew it was God in human flesh. Tiny little fingers a little baby totally dependent on her that is actually the God that created the universe with spoken word. I love, our, I love the Christmas story. I love the gospel story. The gospel message is so great. Maybe tonight you need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you're trusting your good works or some religion or religious duties, the Bible says you will perish in your sins. The Bible makes it clear. It is by grace through faith alone that we're saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. When you get to heaven, it's because Jesus Christ did something on your behalf that you have placed your faith in. He died for your sins and rose from the dead. If you're trusting your own ability, your own goodness, your own religion, or rituals, the Bible says you will perish for all eternity. And this is why Jesus came. He came to save us from our sins. So we have to place our faith and confidence totally in him. God is so good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these Christmas messages, prophecies that are a thousand years, two thousand years tonight, 734 years before the actual birth of Jesus. We can look back and we can kind of almost seem shocked that Ahaz would not trust you. And yet often we go astray because we don't trust your word either. We know what your word says. And if we had confidence in your word, things would work out. But we tend to take things into our own hands and they get even messier. Thank you, Father, that we have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit who lives in the believer. We have the church, brothers and sisters in Christ who can encourage us. You've given us all of these wonderful things that we might not be like Ahaz, but that we might have confidence and trust and comfort and hope in you. Thank you, Father, that the Christmas story is all about trusting Jesus. It's all about what he has done, coming to earth, bearing our sin in his own body, what a great Savior. We just love him so much. And we, we love you, Father, for your plan and the Holy Spirit for his comfort and strength. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the Lord Jesus told uh, the, uh, the disciples uh, on the night in which he was betrayed that the bread was symbolic of his body. And as he held up the Passover bread, now we're switching gears from Christmas to Passover, but when he broke the, the bread and was handing it to each of the disciples, he was making a big point. He was saying that soon his body would be broken for the sins of the world. 
his body would be hanging on the cross and all of the weight of sin laid upon him. You know, Jesus Christ, without any sin, should have lived forever. But in John 10, he said, if I lay down my life, then I have the power to raise it up again. Nobody could take the life of Jesus from him. He was without sin. But God the Father placed our sin on him, and then Jesus gave up his own spirit. He willed himself to die. What a a gift. What a price. What a cost. So tonight we think of the cost, and then our response of it. It's like my ring is symbolic of my marriage. I can go anywhere in the world, and um, people will see that I'm married that I have allegiance to one woman. When you eat the bread and drink the cup tonight, you are declaring allegiance again in a symbolic way to Jesus Christ. You're saying Christ died for my sins, his blood was shed for me. And you know what Paul told the Corinthians? You can't worship the demons at the temple of Apollos and then the next day come and give allegiance to Jesus. You can't do that. God is a jealous God. You can't do that. So we examine our heart. We just think, is my allegiance to Christ? Yes, praise God. All of our sins are paid for. We don't have to, like, we're not asking forgiveness of sins. We're not asking for grace. We're simply reminding ourselves our allegiance belongs solely to Christ. He died for us. Nobody else did. So I'll have the deacons come, and we'll begin passing out the elements, and we will praise